All right, welcome everyone. Today is August 7th, 2015. This is Christy Balsell speaking, and today we're welcoming two speakers who are going to be joining us, specifically talking about Social Security Disability Insurance, also known as SSDI, and Supplemental Security Income, SSI. Um, these are specific programs in the United States, and I'm really excited to welcome our speakers, Annette Hines, Esquire, and Ty Venuti. MPH, and I'm going to do a very brief introduction of them and the topic and then hand it over to them. If you're listening to today's call, either live or as a recording, let me briefly just remind you how you can find the slides to go along with today's call. If you, if you search Social Security Benefits on the MitoAction website, you'll find the announcement for today's call. And under the Join Us box, you can view the slides. If you're listening to this call recorded, you can find other presentations in iTunes and find the slides for these along the same way by looking in the categories on the left on the blog. I do encourage you to email me with questions if I can help you at all, director at mitoaction.org, and we will have a chance for some Q&A at the end of this call as well. So without further ado, let me introduce our two speakers. Annette is going to be speaking first and then Ty, but I'm really excited about welcoming both of these women to speak with us today because um, primarily because I feel that they both have not only a tremendous wealth of knowledge to share with us and very um, specific details to share with us about an area that I think is very confusing and stressful in general for um, patients and families with multiple disabilities, but especially with mitochondrial disease. But also in my interactions with these um, two women over the last couple of years, I've just been really impressed by their compassionate approach to working with people. And so that's probably why I'm most excited to welcome them today. So I'll let Annette and Ty tell a little bit more about themselves, and you can read their bios on our website on the announcement for today's call as well. But I'm going to go ahead and first pass it over to Annette and thank both of you for being here. We're going to jump right in and start talking about SSDI and SSI. Annette, welcome, and go ahead. Thank you, Christy. That was really sweet. Thank you so much for that. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to briefly um, talk about the Social Security programs and the differences between the two. And I'm going to really be focusing in on SSI, which has more of a financial impact in the sense that the eligibility rules don't just include disability eligibility, but also financial eligibility as it was set up as a program for the disabled poor, if you will. Um, and then Ty is going to do a lot more talking about the disability determination process and SSDI, which is an insurance program and much more dedicated to, um, you know, looking at the disability side of folks, and it doesn't necessarily have um, an, a financial qualification or financial eligibility piece. We're both going to be able to answer your questions at the end, and Ty, I would just love for you to go ahead and jump in if there's anything that you want to say about any of the slides that I'm going to be presenting. Sure. I, I just want to let people know that there there are distinct differences, like you were right, between the program, but the disability determination process is the same the same standard. So if you have to prove your disability with SSDI, it's the same standard of proof as a, as SSI. Yes. So um, on the first slide, which is actually slide two, where it says federal financial benefits. 
um, there's a distinction between the two programs. SSI is what we call means-tested. That means that there is an income and an asset test that we're going to be talking about. And SSDI is not a means-tested benefit, but has a, a other eligibility based on how much you've worked, and Ty's got great slides about that, or if you are a child who's disabled or an adult child who is disabled, then you'll be looking at parental eligibility. One of the things that confuses people when they apply for Social Security benefits is the way that the Social Security Administration goes through the potential claims that they have. They are going to look in order of what claims you are eligible for, and there's a priority. SSI is going to be the last one. So they're going to go through whether you're eligible for a retirement benefit, whether you're eligible for SSDI, do you have enough work quarters, is there somebody else's eligibility record that you can go under. And then they're going to look at SSI last. Um, and that is because it is a program that has um, the – it is meant to be for um, folks who have no other option. It's a very small financial payment meant to keep people – off the streets, basically, who who are disabled. Um, when you get a letter in the mail, sometimes when you apply for Social Security for the first time that says you're not eligible for this program, and it might be SSDI, for example, people get very nervous and think that, um, oh, my God, I've been denied. But it only means that they're going through their rotation of figuring out what benefit program you might be eligible for. And you don't have a choice as to you know what you want to be eligible for and what you don't want to be eligible for. That's very important in some states because if you're eligible for SSDI, you might end up being over income for other benefits. I'm going to talk about a little bit about that in a few minutes. So if you click over to the next slide, um, the slide three, it talks about um, who is eligible for SSI. So there's three categories generally of eligibility, and that's if you're blind, if you're elderly, or if you're disabled. You must have limited assets. And there are a number of people who legally are responsible for supporting you. And there's this, um, this idea called deeming, where somebody else's income and assets are going to be deemed to be available to support you if they have a legal duty of support. So this most often comes up with parents and their children. Parents will apply for Social Security for children who are disabled and not realize that the parental assets and income are going to be counted as available to the children. That's because parents until age 18 have a legal duty of support, obligation to support their children and, and provide them with the minimum necessary food, shelter, et cetera. But that's also true of spouses. So spouses who are working or who have assets separate from their spouse are going to have a deeming issue as well. And that's something that comes up a little bit less often, but, um, but it is an issue from time to time. So you have to have limited income. And depending on the income category, what, what type of income you have, you're going to have a reduction in your SSI payment for that income. And we'll, we're going to go into that in a little bit more detail as well. And also, you have to be a U.S. citizen or meet the alien status criteria. 
On the next slide, we're going to talk a little bit about how SSI is very limited. I have actually attached, if you are looking on the computer, um, on the on the MitoAction website, you'll see that there's a download attachment for a sample um, spreadsheet of how payments in Massachusetts are handled. We actually have two payments in Massachusetts, and many states do. There's a state supplement and the federal benefit. And state supplements are available in many states where it is much more expensive to live. So you'll see those in places like New York and Massachusetts and California and that sort of thing. Um, and you might not see a state supplement in you know, Kentucky or North Dakota or something like that. Um, I'm I don't, not aware of all of the state supplements across the board, but you can certainly look up in your state whether there is a state supplement piece. Those state supplement pieces are dependent on the qualification under the federal benefit. So in Massachusetts, um, your benefit is also going to be determined, um, well, federally as well, by what kind of living arrangement you have. Do you live alone in your own apartment or house? Are you sharing expenses with somebody else? Or do you live in the home of another? So that's usually where we find folks who are living with parents or some other person who is providing them uh, room and board or shelter and food. In our state, um, we have a much higher payment for for um, if you're blind. And that's because we do have a huge lobby here for blind people in Massachusetts because we have the famous Perkins School for the Blind and Helen Keller was here and all of that. Um, and it may be different from in your state, from state to state. Um, if you're married, your payments may go down. And then if you look at the chart that I attached, there's several more categories that you can look at. So I have a slide here, just a very general slide on the definition of disability. Um, it's a mental or physical impairment, must be expected to last at least 12 months or result in death sooner. Um, it must affect your ability to work, and Ty's going to go into this in much more detail what substantial gainful activity is, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But when you're looking at children and whether a child has a disability, you're looking at whether they've reached age-appropriate milestones, developmental milestones, or whether they're able to engage in age-appropriate activities of daily living. So, for example, you're not going to be expecting a three-year-old to be able to take their own shower, right? But if somebody is 15 and can't take their own shower without support, then you know, they may be considered disabled. So usually um, it's a little bit looser when you're talking about a child's definition of disability. Okay, next slide talks about public benefits health care. And the reason I've included this slide is because in about 40 states, um, if you are eligible for SSI payments, you're going to automatically be eligible for Medicaid without further application. Medicaid is going to take the SSI qualification for both financial and disability, and they're going to automatically make you eligible as a disabled person for the state Medicaid program. And this is very important for people who require community care because Medicaid pays for many benefits in the community that help keep people in the community and out of nursing homes and institutions. Even if you have private insurance, if you're
you're eligible for Medicaid as a supplement, you should certainly look into that um, because it covers things like durable medical equipment. Your private insurance might have a very, very small um, DME benefit, say $1,500 a year, $2,500 a year. And depending on the kinds of needs that you have as a person with MITO, you might have a lot of equipment needs. You may have special dietary needs you might have a G-tube or a J-tube and need special formulas. You may um, have need for braces or a wheelchair, things like that, that go far over those limits every year. And I remember when my daughter was with us, um, we would run out of our benefit by like January 15th every year. <laughs> so we would always need to switch over to Medicaid very early on. Um, and it can cover dental treatment. It does depend on um, your state. Some Medicaid um, dental benefits are better than others. Co it will cover co-pays, and in this world of very high deductible insurance plans, it will cover your deductible as well. It can cover personal care attendance, nursing, um, and all kinds of home and communi community-based waiver programs. Um, that your state might have signed on to. And those are programs directly related to either getting people out of institutional living or keeping people in the community and out of institutional living. Okay, let's talk about income limits on the next slide. Income under SSI is separated out into two kinds of income, working income and non-working income. And this is very important to distinguish because they're treated differently in the way that they affect your benefit. Income is always counted in the month that it is received, and if it hasn't been spent, then the following month it becomes a countable resource or an asset. So it's a double whammy if you, if you have income in February that comes in on February 28th and it's not spent on March 1st, then it becomes part of your asset limit as well. So income and assets are closely tied. If you look at um, the next slide, the impact on your benefits, working income actually has a um, an encouragement for people to go to work in the way that it in the way that Social Security calculates and treats working income and the the impact on your benefit on your monthly benefit. The first twenty dollars of all income is disregarded, but the next $65 of working income is then disregarded. And after that, every dollar of work reduces your SSI payment by 50 cents. So it's a half impact after the first $85. So I wrote an example out for you. Um, and if you're bad at math like I am, I made the numbers really simple to calculate. <laughs> So, for example, if you have a $500 SSI payment every month and you earned $385 from work, you're going to receive an SSI payment of $350 plus your work income of $385. So you always get to keep your work income. It's just what impact is that going to have. And to go through with you um, from the income from work, the first $20 was disregarded. So that brought us down to $365. Then the next $65 of work income was disregarded, which brings us down to $300 income from work. We're only going to get an impact of half of that $300. So that's where the SSI payment gets reduced from $500 to $350. 
So if you look at the next bullet point, the net result is that if you work, you're going to have total income of $735 for the month. And if you don't work, then you're only going to receive the $500 SSI payment. So it does benefit you to work. In addition to the impact on your disability status that Ty's going to talk about, you if you do work too much or if you work at a very highly paid type of job, then at some point you're going to phase out any income from SSI. But for most of our clients, we have a rule of thumb in Massachusetts. We're looking at probably being able to work and earn about $1,000 a month, um, depending on um, trial work periods and things like that, that Ty will talk about a little bit more. Um, but as far as a financial impact, you can probably earn up to about $1,000 a month and not um, lose your benefit. Because we have we are one of those states that has Medicaid eligibility tied to SSI eligibility, if you get $1 a month of an SSI payment, you're you're still benefiting by having it because you're automatically getting your Medicaid without having to go through a whole different Medicaid process for eligibility. Work does not affect most state supplement payments. Okay, on the next slide, we're going to talk about non-working income. There's a much more dramatic impact on non-working income. And um, you're still going to get that first $20 of income disregarded. But the type of non-working income that you have is going to have different impact on your SSI benefit. There's a long list of payments that are not considered income under SSI. And you can um, figure out what these things are on the POMs. The POMs are the Program Operations Manual System. And that is the, the resource manual for the caseworkers in determining eligibility for, under various different um, line items, such as you know what's income, what's not income, what's the impact going to be, how to figure out if a trust is countable or not countable. And while those POMs are not regulations, they have been given um, high weight in determining um, whether they are controlling for legal purposes for appeals. So if you are looking at the POMs, you're also seeing exactly what the caseworker is looking at when you need to um, determine whether how your income is going to be treated, how your trust is going to be treated. So it's very good to familiarize yourself with that. And it's written in plain English, not in legalese. So um, tax refunds, for example, are not income and they don't become an asset for a long period of time. AFDC payments, veterans benefits, other state agency payments, such as the Department of Developmental Services in our state, sheltered workshop payments, and many things that are similar to that, as you can imagine what they may be. Child support payments um, have a different impact depending on whether the person is under 18 or over 18. So if somebody is under 18 years old, uh, there's going to be a one-third disregard of the payment and then a dollar-for-dollar dollar reduction. So you're only going to get a hit with two-thirds of the payment. However, over 18, the payment actually legally belongs to the child, so there is no disregard, and it's going to get a 100% dollar-for-dollar reduction in benefit after that first $20 of all income disregarded. Alimony payments have a dollar-for-dollar dollar reduction in benefit. Um, there are certain things legally that you can do to reduce 
the impact of those kinds of payments, but they require in most states going to court and um, you know, you'll know you have to speak with your legal counsel in trying to figure out if that's worth it. One of the concerns that um, comes up a lot with the child support payments for children under 18 years old is um, many times the payor wants to look to the Social Security payment as a means for reducing the child support further, as in, you know, my child is now eligible for this benefit or this payment, and that means that I can pay less now. Um, the courts, the state courts, do not look kindly on somebody who is trying to take their obligation of support and put it on the state. So um, that's an argument that d technically doesn't work. And when clients come to me and talk to me about, well, should I apply for Social Security because I don't want my ex-spouse to come back and say now that they're going to lower the payment even further, I always remind them of this, um, of how our state court judges typically will look at that argument. Um, investment income, whether it's pensions, annuities, or, um, or interest and dividends on stocks and mutual funds, et cetera, there's going to be a dollar-for-dollar dollar reduction in the benefit, and these can sometimes be pretty challenging to work with because that kind of income fluctuates from month to month and year to year, and you're often finding yourself when you're reporting past income in a situation where your payment is being adjusted going forward for income you've received in the past. That happens, too, if you have somebody whose income from work is not consistent. Some of my folks you know, might have um, sort of lower-paying jobs maybe at Target or at the movie theater, and you know they might have 10 hours a week today, but next week it's eight hours, and the following week it's 15 hours. And because it varies so much, there's constant fluctuation in the SSI benefit going forward. Okay, on the next slide, we're going to talk about asset limits, and I'm going to keep things moving along because we don't have much time to get through all of the material that Ty has for us, and we want to make sure we save room for questions. So the income limits are very low, and they have not increased in decades. Um, there hasn't been any um, interest, really, in raising these asset limits for um, folks, and it's really quite discouraging because people, um, you know, who have even, you know, eight or $10,000 in the bank are still fairly poor in our society today, and those are not assets that can be lived on long term. So it's discouraging that the Social Security Administration has not looked at this in a very long time and decided to increase the asset limit. But everything is countable. So please make sure you understand that estate planning, what's, what's, you know, a probate um, asset and all of those kinds of things that you might be speaking to your either accountant or attorney about are not necessarily um, excluded assets for Social Security. Pretty much everything is included. Um, sometimes people forget about things, especially if they're applying for their children or their adult children. They forget that they're, they've put their children on a joint account with them or there might be an UTMA or an UGMA account out there somewhere. Um, interestingly enough, college savings accounts, 529 plans, are not assets of the child or the beneficiary, but they are assets of the person who set up the plan 
maybe mom or dad or grandparents. Um, oftentimes there are savings bonds that people have been, you know, stuffing away in a drawer for for their kids who've gotten them as gifts and they've and they've forgotten about them. Um, sometimes there's stock certificates. Even if you have money squirreled away or furniture and you know other assets that have real value to them, you're supposed to report them to Social Security. And I say supposed to because, of course, sometimes people forget about them or particularly will not talk to Social Security about them. You are allowed to have one car. It can't be a luxury vehicle that you can turn into cash. Uh, the whole idea behind these asset limits are anything that you own that can be turned into cash to support you is countable. Um, and the, your home can be an exempt asset if it's yours. So how do I fix uh, an asset or an income problem? And briefly, just let me tell you that it's it's a challenge to um, to plan with somebody who might have some assets or some income, maybe somebody who's become disabled a little bit later in life or who has been diagnosed with something and is looking at a degenerative process like MITO can be, where they may be okay now, but they want to plan for the future. The more time you have to plan, the better off you are. But if you find yourself in the moment, please know that you cannot um, give assets away and not have a penalty period. In general, Social Security is going to look back three years. Medicaid looks back five for some programs, but Social Security looks back three years for any assets that you've given away. You cannot refuse income that you're legally entitled to. And um, Social Security is not does not look at your asset picture as a snapshot in time. Medicaid, on the other hand, does. What does that mean? That means that Social Security can find assets that you might have owned for the last two years that you might have forgotten about, say a savings bond, for example, that has put you over that $2,000 asset limit. And they can decide that um, you need to repay them for every month that you were over that asset limit and that you received an SSI payment. So this is not a snapshot in time. They can go back very far. And recently in the news in the last couple of years, there have been some horrific cases where they've gone after people's estates from years and years previously. And that's certainly being litigated to the max right now about how far back can Social Security look. But that is not something that's been determined as of yet. So they can try to go back many years and recoup um, can you transfer assets to a trust? Well, you can. You can transfer both assets and income, income streams, but the process is going to be heavily dependent on state law and there are going to be there's going to be an impact to your SSI benefits, so you need to look at that as well. So, I'm going to very briefly talk about trusts. I did an estate planning overview with some special needs trust information, um, I think about two months ago, and I believe that the slides are still up. So It, that you it is, Annette. I'll, I'll jump in. It, it is, and if um, people go to mitoaction.org slash blog, that's the best way to navigate those topics, or just search MitoAction on iTunes, and you can listen to the recording. And, um, and I believe Christine Cox, our Director of Advocacy, also wrote a summary about that as well, so you can find it on the website and, and see awesome. the slides and read the summary also. Wonderful, wonderful. 
So there are two kinds of special needs trusts in brief. There's the third-party trust that gets set up with other people's money. Typically, a family member will set up a trust for a disabled family member, whether that's a sibling, a parent, or a child. Um, and sometimes we have uncles and cousins and so forth. And a first-party first trust is set up with the disabled person's own money. So if you have some time to plan and you see this coming down the pike for you where you may need public benefits or your your situation is, is um, declining, then, you know, you can look at how you can manage your estate through trust in order to qualify for public benefits. Understanding full well that that $500 or $800 a month that Social Security gives you is really not the be-all and end-all. It's the access to other benefits that Social Security eligibility provides. Social Security eligibility is the pillar from which all things come or the tree trunk from which all the branches sprout. So that's important to note. Um, Third-party trusts, I'm on the I'm on slide 13 now. Third-party trusts um, let other people contribute, and the trustee has discretion over the distributions. That's why third-party trusts work because the disabled person has no control and no say over the trust assets or over the trustee. No right to demand. That's how third-party trusts are an exempt asset for public benefits purposes. If you're establishing a first-party trust, meaning if you have assets, and we see this sometimes with settlements or with a, you know, all of a sudden somebody inherits some money for, through an estate that they didn't know was coming to them or they haven't done proper planning because they weren't aware that they needed to do this, they weren't aware of the rules, sometimes we have to establish a trust for the disabled person themselves with their own assets. Um, that has much more strict rules. Again, I go into this in more detail. If you don't have somebody who can set up a trust for you, you can go to a pooled trust. And those pooled trusts are typically run by nonprofits. They're in every state, and some of them are national. And they can work with you to set up either a third-party or first-party pooled trust account and help manage it for the disabled beneficiary. And the last thing that I want to chat about on slide 16 is ABLE accounts because everybody's been hearing a lot about ABLE accounts. And it's important to talk about whether they're going to be helpful to folks with disabilities um, who are trying to remain eligible or become eligible for an SSI payment. So ABLE accounts have um, been allowed under federal law, but not all states have implemented them yet. In Massachusetts, we have not. We're hoping to be done by the end of the year, but I'm not sure about that. Um, so each state needs to implement their own regulations about how the ABLE accounts are going to work because the Medicaid programs um, are much more state-sensitive than the Social Security programs, and that's where the issues come in. So ABLE accounts can be very helpful, but there's limits to them. There's a limit to the amount per year that can be put into a trust, and the total amount allowed in the account is $100,000. You can only have one account per person, in contrast with special needs trusts, which you can have many. Um, and it has limited uses for distribution, unlike most special needs trusts, which can distribute for anything that the trustee determines is important for the special needs beneficiary. 
Um, there are certain categories. There's a wide breadth of categories that you can distribute for ABLE accounts, but not everything is on there. For example, recreation is not there. Travel is not there. So you would need to look at what your goals were for setting up the account. It still has a state recovery, meaning that um, if you set up this account with your own money and you're the disabled person, there's going to be a state recovery just like a first-party special needs trust. And if you need more details about that, again, on my previous presentation. But it can be a good solution under certain circumstances because it prevents the necessity of going to court to establish it sometimes. And most importantly, it allows the person to create and fund it themselves much more easily than creating a trust and also to control the assets if they're able. And that last part right there is one of the reasons that people are very excited about ABLE accounts because if you are somebody with a disability who is not incompetent and who can manage your own finances, this might be a good, a good resource for you. So with that, I am done. I'm going to turn it over to Ty to talk about the next piece, which is SSDI. Thank, thank you so much, Annette. That was really fantastic. And everybody, I'll post a link on our um, Facebook page as a comment also with the, uh, the discussion that Annette was referring to as well. So, um, Ty, you have some really wonderful information in your slides as well, so we'll hand it over to you. And feel free to tell us a little about yourself as well as you start get started. And thanks again, okay. Annette. That was great. Okay, go ahead, Ty. Yeah, thanks, Annette. I learned a lot from your presentation as well. I just want to – am I on slide 17? I don't have the actual – I want to make sure I have the numbers correct. Uh, hold on one second. Time. But um, – Yes, uh, slide 18. Ty. I'm on 18. Okay. So um, thank you for having me. I'm Ty. I work at ALSEP. We've been around for 30 years. I um, This is what I do, education and outreach on, I call it um, disability literacy. And so today we'll be talking um, about the SSDI process um, and specifically. And I'm going to go through the slides rather quickly just because we're a little short on time. Um, but I'll have my contact information if people have questions. Um, so we'll go on to um, slide 19. Um, SSDI eligibility. We get about 10,000 calls a month just from people who have questions about are they eligible for SSDI. Um, they can't work anymore. They have questions like what programs am I eligible for. And to give you an idea of kind of the scope of education and everything that's needed, only about 5 to 7% of people who call us are actually eligible um, for SSDI. Um, and the, the one, number one reason why people are not eligible is that they don't have enough work credit. And as a rule of thumb, if you've worked five out of the last 10 years, paying into Social Security through your FICA taxes, then you probably will be eligible um, as far as the work credit requirement for um, SSDI. Now, the eligibility for younger workers, and I'll go on to the next slide on slide 20, is um, a little different because you're younger, maybe you haven't had an had as much time to build up a work history. And so Social Security does have a formula for um, seeing if you're eligible as far as work credits. And the formula is in those bullets, and I won't spend a lot of time on that. And again, I apologize for going quickly, but you can call me if you have questions. So the next slide on eligibility, Annette went through the definition of the their definition of disability, which is if you have a mental or physical impairment that um, is going to last more than 12 months or result in death. 
So to qualify for SSDI, you meet that criteria, you have enough work credits, usually if you've worked five out of the last 10 years, you have to be under retirement age because if you're, if you're of retirement age, you would simply just get um, Social Security retirement. Um, you have to be over 21, and of course, you have to have proof of your disability. So on the next slide, labeled Adult Disabled Children and SSDI, Adult children of someone who's receiving a Social Security benefit, whether it's retirement or disability, may be, may be eligible for SSDI as well. And so sometimes you'll see adult children who maybe they've qualified for SSI. As Annette um, explained, there's a lot of income restrictions um, related to that. They may be eligible for SSDI under their parents' work record. And sometimes, and usually this is a better benefit for the adult disabled child. The eligibility criteria for that is um, the, the diagnosis has to have been made before age 22. They have to meet the same disability criteria, and they cannot be engaged in any sub substantial gainful work, and Social Security uh, defines that this year as earning more than $1,090 a month. Um, they will adjust that annually. Usually, I think last year it was $1,070 a month. This year, it's $1,090 a month. Um, and so. Real quickly, those are the um, eligibility uh, criteria for adult disabled children seeking SSDI on their parents' benefit. So what are the benefits? Um, most people are familiar that there's a monthly income. In 2015, that average monthly income was uh, $1,165. And if a person had a family, that average was a little under $2,000 a month. People are eligible for Medicare 24 months after the date of their SSDI cash entitlement. So with SSI, usually goes Medicaid. With um, SSDI, there's Medicare. But there is a 24-month wait period, unlike um, Medicaid, if you're getting SSI. The next slide, 24, the benefits of uh, SSDI continued. Um, if you are receiving SSDI, you may be able to extend your COBRA benefits an additional 11 months. Um, COBRA can be quite costly for people, and um, now that the Affordable Care Act and the marketplace exchanges are available, usually that's a more affordable route for people to go to, is to look at their healthcare exchange plans if their COBRA runs out or if the COBRA is too cost prohibitive. Um, Social Security also protects retirement benefits. Um, in that it freezes your, your, your earnings record. So if you were working and earning so much a month, uh, so much a year, if you had to stop working because of your disability or decrease your hours, chances are maybe you'll have a zero income year or a very low income year. If you're receiving Social Security disability, those zero and low income years will not count in that averaging. So your retirement benefit may be um, larger. And then finally, there are return to work incentives um, that Social Security will provide um, to encourage individuals who had to quit work to return to the workforce. The last slide on benefits of SSDI is that it can protect your other income benefits. If you're lucky enough to be um, one of um, the one-third of workers who have long-term disability insurance, your long-term disability carrier usually will require you to file for SSDI. And if you don't, you could be in danger of losing your long-term disability benefits. And then um, they also provide dependent benefits. Um, as I said, the average, um, the average SSDI benefit for someone who has a family is about $800 more per month um, than someone who does not have any benefits. And usually that, that's for people who have children under the age of 18. And usually that dependent benefit will be half 
of that person's entitlement. So if you're entitled to $1,000 a month on your SSDI benefit, then your dependent benefits will probably be about $500 for, for your dependents. So the next slide, um, 26, which talks about impairment listings. Um, Social Security goes through, when they're determining disability, they look at, they look at a list of impairments. And there is no impairments listing specifically for mitochondrial disease, but there are many other many diseases related to mitochondrial dysfunction um, that are listed. And the examples are bulleted here: diabetes, Parkinson's disease, stroke, um, et cetera. The next slide continued the um, impairment listings. Different symptoms um, associated with mitochondrial disease may um, cause someone to be eligible for disability, um, and these are bulleted here. So visual and hearing problems, liver disease, kidney disease, thyroid, et cetera. So what is the process, the actual process? Well, there consists of five levels in most states. There, there are some states that skip a level, and I'll explain that in a bit. In a bit. Um, surprising to me that most people who file actually get frustrated with the process and they never continue. Right now, I think Social Security just uh, announced that it's about, out of all the people who apply, about four out of 10 actually go on to receive their benefits. And I'll talk a little bit about approval rates at the different levels because you are able to um, appeal at different levels. So the next slide, level one, the initial application, um, this will take you about two to three months. Um, Social Security said it took 110 days for them to get back to people last year. The takeaway here is that um, nearly more than two out of three people are denied at this level. So the expectation is really that you will get denied at this level. So brace yourself for you know the appeals process. The next slide I have here is called the sequential evaluation. Now this slide don't don't worry if you're like, what the heck? Um, I put this in, this is social security, this is a social security graphic. And I just put this up here to kind of show you visually how confusing it can be. Um, so the sequential evaluation process is five steps. Social security looks and says first, is the individual working above substantial gainful activity level? And again, they define substantial gainful activity this year as earning $1,090 a month. Okay, if they, if they are not, then the person can go on to the next level. But if they are working at that level, the claim's gonna be denied because you're not gonna be disabled according to Social Security's definition. Second, is the condition severe? It must interfere with your basic work-related activities and be expected to last at least a year or result in death. So does that condition, does that person meet that? If yes, then they go on to number three. So is the criteria listing considered to be so severe um, that the individual is found to be disabled if the mental or physical impairments match them? So if this individual meets that listing, then they can go on to the next level. And that is the person, that's when Social Security looks at what they call their residual functional capacity. So what is that? Residual functional capacity capacity is a function by function assessment of an individual's maximum ability. So what you what what your maximum ability is to do sustained work. Um, so how long can you stand? How long can you sit? What how much can you lift? 
So if if the person, if you retain any functional capacity to perform any of your past or relevant work, then you will be denied. But if you can't, then the individual will go on to the next step. And that's where Social Security takes into consideration your age, your education, and work experience. And the rule of thumb here is the older you are and the less education you have, the more likely you will be um, awarded at this level. So then you would go on to, so that's their sequential evaluation that gets you on to, um, to pass the application stage. So if you do get denied at the application stage, your first level of appeal is level two, and that's reconsideration. I won't go through all these bullets, but the takeaway here is that almost 90% of claims are denied at this level. There are some states that skip this level, and they are listed here. Um, this was a policy. Uh, Social Security was doing a pilot project to see if it would increase, um, because there's a huge backlog, if this would make it faster for people to get um, their their claims awarded. And so far, it's had mixed results. But if you're in one of these states, you will not have um, a level two. So the next slide talks about level three. And this is what's called the hearing level. This is where um, an individual has a chance to submit more medical records, more medical evidence, and have a hearing in front of an, an administrative law judge. This is the level where most people, if they don't have a representative helping them, that they have a representative at this level. And um, approximately nationwide, a little over half of claims um, are denied at this level last year. Um, at ALSEP, that's what we do. We, we help people with the representation process. Actually, our award rate is like is 72% at this level. Um, so you can see that it does benefit to have representation. Could I so just also um, jump in for one second as, the, as an attorney and say that for most of the cases that I see, um, we have huge success at the reconsideration level. And that's mostly because I'm not dealing with a disability determination. I'm dealing with the financial matters. And most of the time, there's just some misunderstanding about an asset or a trust or something like that. So we have much more um, success on our end with some of those financial eligibility rules than the disability eligibility rules. I just wanted to throw that in. Thank you for clarifying that. Yes, and that gets back to the point that SSI and SSDI are two very they're similar in that they're based on the person's disability, but um, their criteria and the process can be are very different. So thank you for that. Um, if you do get denied at the hearing level, which um, I I feel just from if if you reach the hearing level and you're denied, then pro chances are you probably will not be awarded. Um, level four, approximately 99% of these appeals at level four are denied, and then. You do. There is one last level, and it's in federal district court. That's the next slide, and that's the only level that you actually need an attorney. So you can have an attorney as a representative. There are a lot of non-attorney representatives um, that can help you with your social security disability claim. Um, but level five is the level where you actually do need to have an actual attorney help you. So the next slide: Why people need help. Um, let you see those bullets. I'm trying to go really fast. And you know what? Instead of trying to rush through these, I think I'm going to um, plan on not addressing return to work this time. Is that okay, Christy? 
Yeah, and don't don't stress about time. Um, also, Ty, because um, we have we are more flexible. We're not going to cut the call off, and we'll take time for the questions. And um, and certainly because the call is being recorded, um, people can can jump in and listen to the tail end first. You have so much good information, okay. and I think that it's an <laughs> excellent opportunity because, really, as a community. Um, it's so exhausting to try to find out this information on your own. So um, you have some great info in your slides, but don't don't stress. We're not gonna we're not gonna turn into pumpkins at one o'clock. Okay, okay. <laughs> I just wanted to be respectful of everybody's time and yeah. and everything. So um, well, the next slide I have here um, it has the Office of the Inspector General seal, and this is just um, the the Social Security um, Social Security Administration actually has. Uh, their own inspector general who did an audit of the process and they found again and this is if I beat the dead horses because I just believe it in so much get help from the very beginning um, so this audit found that um, that if people had had help from the very beginning it could have saved some of some claimants 500 days in the process and you're thinking about 500 days in the process is 500 days without an income um, and um, you know a lot of negative repercussions that that result from that so um the next slide so i mean advocating for people to get help okay so how much does it cost to get help so the fees are actually regulated by social security and they are contingency based so if the representative does not obtain an award for you then you do not pay the representative anything if you are awarded and um if you are awarded at level one, um, there's a flat rate, um, and I, I probably should have these bullets transposed, because the, the rate is 25% of a one-time retroactive payment if, if it goes through the appeals process, but it can't be more than $6,000. So if you are awarded at level one, and there's a mandatory five-month wait period for your cash benefits to begin, there is a possibility that you will have no retroactive payment. So in that case, that's where the flat rate kicks in. And again, Social Security will determine what they think should be uh, an appropriate a flat rate for that. Um, something important to ask when you, if you're looking for help, if you're looking for a representative, is if they charge out-of-pocket expenses um, or is it just a flat rate. So, for example, ALSEP doesn't charge for copying medical records, securing medical records, phone calls, and travel, but you should ask that up front because you don't want to be surprised um, after you get your award um, and then you get a bill for additional expenses. So the next slide is a graph of, I had mentioned that sometimes people, most people still apply on their own and they wait till they get to the appeals level to get a representative. So we did a survey of people who had come to us after that scenario, they had applied on their own gotten denied and then came to ALSEP and we said what what were some of the difficulties you had and overwhelmingly it was form related completing the forms understanding the forms and then waiting on the waiting on the phone waiting in line and others the next slide and I had mentioned that sometimes the process can take two to four years and what happens to individuals where they're waiting without an income um, so this this bars some of the things that you'd expect stress on the family, the illness became worse, stress on marriage, um, you know, draining 401k and savings. Um, some people, you know, had their houses foreclosed on and 5% of those surveys actually became homeless. So a lot of ne negative repercussions from having to go through that appeal process. So you want to try to avoid it 
if at all possible. And the best way to do that is to get help from the very beginning. Um, the next slide, health insurance assistance, again, um, going through this process, because it can be such a long wait, a lot of people, almost a third, lose their health insurance while they're waiting for the SSDI. And then once they get it, there's still a 24-month wait period for Medicare. So, for example, so also now has been able to start helping people um, make sure that they stay insured. And you want to stay insured even while you're going through the SSDI process because Social Security does require up-to-date medical records, so it can be a catch-22. And unfortunately, a lot of people have dropped out or not appealed or not have their, when they're eligible, not have their benefits approved because they just had stopped going to the doctor because they couldn't afford it because they didn't have insurance, they didn't have the medical proof. So very important to stay insured to keep going um, for treatment while you're going through the process. The next slide, just some handy questions when you're looking for a um, representative, when you're looking for help with that. Ask the person or the representative if they specialize in SSDI. Do they help with initial applications? Um, some um, organizations or uh, attorneys might say, tell you, well, file on your own, and if you don't get approved, then come back, uh, and I'll help you with the appeal. And I recommend to people to find someone who will help you at the, at the very beginning stages, again, because you want to avoid an appeal. And also, if you get approved at the initial level, the fee you're going to pay is going to be much smaller because your retroactive payment is going to be smaller because you didn't wait as long. Um, what's your success rate? Um, what specific activities will you handle? Will you get my medical records or will that be up to me? Um, do you have experience representing someone with mitochondrial disease? Um, and that's especially... Uh, it's especially important for someone with mitochondrial disease because it is a rare disease. And so the less um, familiar, typically the less familiar uh, disability examiners are with, with, with a disease, the less likely they are to approve it because they're not familiar with really the impact that it can have on daily activities of living and work-related activities. And then how will you keep me up to date on what's happening? The number one complaint I get from consumers is, I have a representative, but I don't know where my claim is. My representative is not calling me back. I'm really frustrated. And it can be a very frustrating um, experience because it it can be a very slow experience. And when you're dealing with not having an income or not having access to health insurance, um, it's understandable that you want to be kept up to date. So find out how um, your representative is going to be communicating and keeping you up to date on that. Um, the next slide has to deal with meeting the Ticket to Work Challenge. And I am pretty sure that this could be a... Um, a totally separate <laughs> presentation. So, Christy, I can go after, go on with these slides if you'd like me to, or we could cut it off now and take questions about SSDI. I'm, I will go according to your cue. Um, why don't you just briefly say what the Ticket to Work program is, and um, and then you know if we have a lot of questions about it, then uh, maybe folks can give us feedback, and that would be a great topic to pursue okay. for a whole nother conversation, but just kind of hit hit the high points, if you will. Okay, I sure tonight. will. Okay, so the first couple of first couple of slides, meeting the Ticket to Work Challenge, is just kind of remarking on if you are working and then you have to stop working because of mitochondrial disease or any other disability, it's a, tra it's a transition. You are now into a, going into a system where you are daily trying to prove you cannot work. And after you've gone through this, maybe it's six months or three years of telling 
people, you can't work and proving why you can't work, as soon as you get your benefits, guess what? You're eligible for work support. So I just put this up front because um, knowing from the very beginning that getting SSDI does not have to be forever, that there, there is light at the end of the tunnel if you want to pursue working, that there are those supports. Um, so I'll skip the why work, and I'll get into the ticket to work slide with the people with the puzzle pieces ticking together. So that what the ticket to work program does, it supports career development for people with disabilities by providing choices, opportunities, and supports. So SSDI beneficiaries who want to improve your earning potential um, and are committed to preparing for long-term success are the best candidates for this. And it utilizes work incentives. Um, and I'll, the next slide details those. So what are the work incentives? So there's a trial work period. And these are nine months where you're allowed to work and make as much income as you can without losing any of your SSDI benefits. And so this is just to give individuals a good gauge of, am I able to do this? Can I do this? And not be afraid of losing benefits if they're earning too much, which would be great if you're earning too much. And it would be great if you can sustain that. So that, those are nine months, and they don't have to be consecutive. Um, so, this is a, so, um, so you can try to go back to work. If you are, if you are successful at that, um, and you are returning to work, you still get an extended period of eligibility even after your nine months of those trial work ends. And your full benefits continue as long in any months that your earnings are under substantial gainful activity, which is $1,090 a month, and as long as you continue to have your disabling condition. If you are, if you are a success and you're able to make over substantial gainful activity and you do not need your SSDI benefits, and you say, okay, it still doesn't have to be a scary process because you're still eligible for expedited reinstatement. So if something happens and you have a relapse or, you, or you're not able to work to that capacity anymore, you will be able to have your benefits um, reinstated without having to reapply. And this incentive is for five, up to five years after your, um, after your benefits stop due to earnings. The next slide, you get, uh, and because healthcare is so, so important, a continuation of Medicare coverage for up to 93 months. Um, and then you're also excluded from medical, medical continuing disability reviews. And these are reviews that usually happen at three, five, and seven year periods, depending on your prognosis. If your condition is expected to improve, um, you'll get reviewed much uh, more regularly than someone where no improvement is expected. Um, as long as you have an active ticket, then you are excluded from having to go through those reviews. Um, Talk a little bit about the incentives. Well, who are the people that can help you use those incentives? Who are the providers? So the next slide, provider resources. Um, these are the basic providers who can help you with that. You have employment networks. You have state vocational, vocational rehabilitation agencies, work incentives, planning and assistance, and protection and advocacy for beneficiaries of Social Security. And all of these can be found on choosework.net. You can find your local um, entities for your local representatives for each of these entities. So each community will have their own um, WIPA, the incentive planning and assistant, and your own um, PABSS. 
At ALSUP, we are an employment network, and that's probably going to be either the state vocational agency or the or employment network is going to be your first stop. And this is the provider that will help you develop your individual work plan. It will help you define your employment goals. Do you want to continue on your career path, or has your condition made it necessary for you to redefine um, your career path, what you want to do. Do you want to start your own business? Do you want to continue to go uh, in an office environment? Would you like to work at home? What kind of work is going to be conducive um, for you working with your medical uh, or mental disability? Um, the Employment Network will provide career counseling to help you answer those kind of questions. And also job placement. Some employment networks will already have a built-in network of employers who understand um, job accommodations for people with certain disabilities. Do you need an employer who has flexible hours? Um, do you need an employer who understands um, that you might need a quiet room, um, that you would need written instructions for everything? So an employment network can help the employer and the individual looking for work make that connection. So the next slide, the summary. Um, so if you can't work due to mitochondrial disease or, uh, and usually it's not just one condition, it's usually gonna be um, you know, a, a comor comorbid conditions that make it impossible for someone to continue working full time, um, then you should, the first step should be to determine your eligibility for SSDI benefits. Get help, like I said, from the very beginning. And then remember that even though you're going through the disability process, um, it doesn't mean that you will never return to work, that there are um, resources such as the Ticket to Work program that can help you redefine your career goals and re-enter the workforce. And so I'll just close with um, information on how to contact me um, for more information on those topics. Woo! <laughs> That was a marathon, and, uh, <laughs> and you you did great, both of you. Thank you so much for all of this really helpful information. And I'm sure folks have questions, so I'm going to unmute everyone and, and let us ask some questions. So everyone, if you're thinking of your question, let me just um, lay out a couple ground rules for the sake of um, preserving some order on our call. If you'll try to keep your question as... Um, broad to the whole group as possible. I know that this is very personal, but we um, can follow up by, via email more directly to learn more about your personal situation. So try to keep your questions where they'll be relevant to the whole group. And um, if you'd like to, you can say your name and where you're calling from, but you certainly don't have to. Um, I will remind everyone that the call is being recorded when you ask your questions. You can also email your question to me, director at MitoAct org, and I'd be glad to ask the question on your behalf. And then we can take additional questions via our Facebook page or by email, and we can post those as comments on the website as well. So without further ado, uh, um, Annette and Ty, that was fantastic. So let me just unmute everyone, and we'll take some additional questions. Bear with me while you hear a couple beeps. Hi, this is Debbie and Marietta. Okay, hi Debbie. Welcome, and go ahead and ask your question, um, Debbie. What my question is is what she touched on a little bit is starting at the beginning of the process. I, I'm out on um, short-term leave right now, but what I'm having difficulty finding is what exactly what they talked about. I can't find anybody that would help me with a disability paperwork at the beginning, which is what I'm really struggling with. But it, can also or a place like this help if they're in a different state, like if they're in Massachusetts and I'm in Georgia? 
Hi. Um, sorry, what was your name again? Debbie in Marietta. Hi, Debbie. Yes. Um, also can help. We help people nationwide. You can call um, 888-841-2126. Okay. Or you, you can go to expert.alsup.com and there's a form right right there and you can fill it out and have someone um and someone will contact you right away and uh i i i hear that a lot from people um and i i i totally encourage you to to get because that's i feel like that's the heavy lifting part the initial application absolutely and it's very overwhelming especially if we're already out in the first place like to add mm-hmm. even more to the plate it's, it's yeah it's very overwhelming Sure. Or you can just go to allsup.com as well and just read about the process if you want to get. Um, but for the eligibility screening, if you go to expert.allsup.com, then that can get you started. Or you have my contact information. You can follow up with me personally as well. Great. Okay. And this is Ty? Yes. All right. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. You make a good point, Debbie, in that it's um it's it's a little unfair, I think, when you're already dealing with the consequences of your diagnosis than to have something else as your responsibility because if you had the energy to work, you would then to take on something as you know as overwhelming as all of that paperwork. This is part of why I was really excited to connect everybody with Ty and Annette today, just to see that there's some help. So thank you for that great question. Okay, I heard a gentleman about to ask a question. Go ahead, jump in. There was a gentleman who was about to ask a question. I interrupted him. Go ahead. Oh, maybe I just misunderstood the voice. Okay, who would like to ask a question? Go ahead. I have a question about um, a 17-year-old daughter um, living with parents who have more than $2,000 in the bank. How does this apply to a 17-year-old who clearly would meet the criteria for disability, but how do you get SSI or SSDI, and, or can you? So I, um, this is Annette, I have a humongous um, part of my practice in an area called transition planning. As kids are um, approaching adulthood between ages, say, 17 and 25, there are various points where we're looking at things like um, eligibility for public benefits, setting up special needs trusts, um, you know, what's going to go on with school, are they going to go through 18, 22, et cetera, um, housing and, you know, all of those kinds of things, um, whether there's going to be guardianship or not guardianship but other legal authorities. So it's a question that we we often look at most of the time we are looking at somebody becoming eligible at age 18 because at 18, parental assets and income don't count anymore. And if we know that a teenager has assets over $2,000, whether it be um, you know, some savings bonds, uh, an UTMA account that's been set up, et cetera, there is a great opportunity before the child turns 18 to move things to a special needs trust for that child if that's okay. appropriate, depending on the you know, how big the resources are and what the goals are for those resources. So we would typically counsel a family about that. In if we can get people to come and talk to us um, in that 17th year, that's usually the best time to do the plan. How can you work with people out of state? Um, we typically can't. It's because a lot of the public benefits programs, other than um, Social Security, are state-based. 
Um, we we can work with your local estate planning attorney who may not have special needs expertise, and we can advise and then count on them to understand the local laws. Um, and we do that an awful lot. So, um, right. What you know, should I expect expense-wise for something like that, paying an attorney to help? Um, that, that depends on how much work there is to do. It's awful hard to tell. If I mean, what's a minimum for somebody to get in and get some basic help, and what's the kind of a max? I mean, just a range, because I, I can't even imagine that we've got a, so many medical expenses and other issues and kids trying to go to school. And, yeah. Uh, well, but it's important. We need to, but I just, I just, any type of, I mean, this other stuff that Ty was talking about sounds like max $6,000 and, um, so that's that's very different than doing estate planning. It's not um, what you're talking about is not so much about um, applying for Social Security as it is setting up a plan to make sure right. that your child is financially eligible. So that's not um, that's that's not um, SS that's not Social Security assistance, and it's not un, under their rules. And it really does depend on what state you're in and how specialized an attorney you seek. Most of our clients are going to pay for a full estate plan with assistance with um, funding special needs trusts anywhere from, you know, low end like 4000 up to ten dollars or $12,000. But that's going to depend on what level of assets we're looking at, whether there's right. tax planning involved, you know, how complex is the right. situation. Right. Um, can I contact you privately and you, maybe you could help us find someone where – we live, is that a possibility? Um, so I will answer questions from anybody from Mito Action and also have in-depth conversations without a, a fee. So if anybody contacts us, please let them know that you're from Mito Action so that they won't put you through our regular process of charging a, a fee to, you know, to meet with me or to talk with me and all of that. And, um, you know, we're happy to, I'm happy to help that's, that's, re- that's so really, really generous of you and, and means quite a lot to us in this community. Um, so thank you for, for your candor with that also. Okay, um, I, are we doing oh, okay on time, just, Ty uh, and Annette? Can I, we, hold on, I, I just want to make sure we're doing okay. We can take a couple more questions, Ty and Annette. Yeah, can you take a couple is, more questions? Yeah, yeah, this is Ty, but I also wanted to address the last caller's um, concern because I, I get a lot of questions from parents too, and this might not be, this might apply to your situation. It might not. But um, in general, if you have a child um, who was diagnosed, again, that was the adult disabled children um, benefit, diagnosed before age 22, um, when you retire or if you receive Social Security disability benefits, at that point your child may also be eligible for Social Security disability benefits on your work record. And because it's SSDI, those um, asset limits do not apply. So you said right now there's a 17-year-old who has over $2,000 in assets. If one of her parents, once they start collecting Social Security, she may be eligible for SSDI. And so I would definitely follow up on that if that's, if that's applicable for in anyone's situation. Thank you. So this is Annette. Sometimes that's a little bit of a curse and not so much of a blessing because – once you don't have that automatic Medicaid eligibility, and Medicaid is very important for folks with MITO most of the time um, because we require a lot of things that um, 
are not fully covered by your Blue Cross Blue Shields of the world. So, um, you, you know, when you're going into the Medicaid, the state Medicaid system, under different income rules, an SSDI payment can very often put you over that limit, and now you have other problems. So um, Right. But if she had over $2,000 in assets, she wouldn't be eligible for SSI or Medicaid. Anyway. Those are easier things to fix than the income problem, though. The asset problem is easy. That's a one-time fix. The income problem is ongoing. So that's a, a harder challenge for us when we're doing the planning. That's a good point. Every situation is going to be have the different factors that they're going to have to weigh. Um, can I All right, let's go to another you? question. Go ahead. Hi, this is Sophia um, from California. I, I have a 14-year-old with Mido, and I'm trying to figure out, is, do I need to apply for SSDI or SSI? Is there some advantage in having that, starting that process and having that established? I have assets but no income. And is there help for the fact that I haven't worked because I, I'm too busy caring for him. Um, so this is Annette. So I do a lot of my practice with younger people and their families. So um, it's hard. If you have any assets at all other than your home, it's going to be very difficult to, for your child to qualify for a benefit until she's 18. But many states have other programs that will allow you to get paid or get some kind of compensation or reimbursement for needing to be available to your child and keeping them out of institutional living. Every state is different. Um, in our state, we have a program through Medicaid called Adult Foster Care, Adult Family Care, and you're eligible for that at age 16. Um, and it's a it can be a substantial payment, non-income, to a parent to care for um, a child at home. And there are other kinds of programs through the ARCs and through various um, nonprofit and public-private uh, partnerships, depending on your state. So finding your local nonprofit disability organization to talk to and tell them about your income issues will be very important for you. Okay. Yeah, I've asked around, and nobody people sort of look at me cross-eyed. Nobody <laughs> seems to quite get the concept i can't figure out do i need to to apply for for you know establishing that he has a disability i mean he has a disability but establishing it through the ssdi ssi system uh, in some official way i mean if it takes 2 years to do that doesn't does one start now start now mhm um, well, yes and no. I mean, start collecting the information, but applying now isn't going to help you. Okay, because it doesn't it he, and it doesn't affect him until he's six. Or it doesn't there isn't anything available until he's at least sixteen. Eighteen for Social Security. Okay, but unless you're receiving Social Security yourself. Uh, Okay, but so the, but you said something about as a parent caring for a 16-year-old. That's a different program, and those programs are all state by state, and they don't have anything to do with Social Security. Okay, so it's a state program. It, yeah. it has nothing to do with Social Security. Okay, and that's Correct. where I keep sort of 
keep getting sent in circles. You know, the woman at at Medicaid, Medi-Cal, is telling me, why haven't you applied for SSI? And I said, well, I don't qualify. <laughs> well, you, you might qualify because you have no income to um you know, for your child to benefit from. But if you have assets, you're not going to qualify. Right, and I have assets. I have no income, but I have assets. And so I qualify for Medicaid in California, but not for SSI. Okay, I got it. I I think I need to find some, thank you, some um, state organizations. Yeah, and helpful tip, parents, other parents are really your best resource. Truly. Right, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I'm finding that I'm sort of ahead of most of them. They're usually calling me up going, how do I do this? Uh, (laughs) Sometimes even the helpers need help, right, Sophia? (laughs) (laughs) And I figured out how to beat it. I have got my son's insurance company paying for all of his out-of-network doctors in full. Good for you. That's quite an accomplishment. All right. Um, this is so helpful. Let's take another question. Oh, sorry, I'm in, I'm talking over you. Let's take another question. It sounds like um, someone was jumping in. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, can you address IHSS? I was told that it would affect his Social Security payment if I received IHSS, and that doesn't make sense to me. And I'm in California. In-home support services is what I'm talking about. Hmm. Who's the payor for that? I'm thinking Social Security. Don't like Erica. No. I don't um, think so. I don't um, think Social Security. It's probably a Medicaid program. Um, and most supposed to be cut to here. Most Medicaid programs are not income and won't affect a Social Security payment. But um, I'm not sure. Ty, do you know? Did you get correspondence from Social Security? I love your sweater. Not regarding IHS. I applied for IHSS, and she told me that if I got it, that his income would go down. And it doesn't make sense to me. Let me interrupt. We're getting a little bit of, we can hear people on the phone, and just remember, everybody, you can use mute on your phone or star six to mute your line if you're... um, needing to do some other things just because we're trying to be able to hear. Thanks, everybody. Go ahead. But I've been told that if he gets in-home support services, that it will deduct from his Social Security payment. So I don't know how, that. But I was going to say, I don't know how it would affect his Social Security payment. If you look under the palms, there are specific income rules by state as well. So you'll see under an income rule, for example, that will list out what a rule is in Massachusetts, what a rule is in California, and so forth. Um, so I think that... It, All he you know, gets it, is Social Security. He's, a, he's an adult. He has and, no but he income. Lives with you. He's an adult, but he lives with you? Yes. So I think that you need to get some expert in-state assistance for that. Okay, thank you. All right, everybody, it's um, been so helpful, and I think we could keep asking questions, but I do want to be respectful of our time. 
So here's an option for you if you have additional questions. Um, you are able to post comments on the website, which so right there on the page where it announced today's discussion, you can post your question as a comment, and then we can um, post a reply. Even easier than that, you can email me your questions, director at mitoaction.org, if you think that they would be you know relevant to everyone, and I can ask. Annette and Ty to respond, and we can post those as comments as well. And then um, finally, you could post those on our Facebook page or message us. So there's lots of ways to get in touch. In addition, Annette and Ty have provided so graciously their contact information. Uh, but I want to just take a moment, our last couple minutes, and just thank Annette and Ty for putting together all of these materials. And um, as I said at the beginning of the call, your compassionate approach to helping people and um, really you know, taking a step back and understanding how challenging and complicated this is in addition to all of the other things that we as Mito families juggle <laughs> is it really goes a long way. And that's, I think, what we really appreciate. And this information, I think, was extremely helpful. For all of our callers, this call was recorded, so we'll be putting that up. It takes um, about 12 hours or so for it to load onto iTunes, but then you'll be able to listen to it again and follow along with the slides since there was so much detailed information there um, to follow along with. And uh, everyone, thank you so much. And please join me in thanking Ty and Annette right now. Thank you, Ty and Annette. This was really helpful and uh, very much appreciated. You're very welcome. My pleasure. So, yeah, so thank you so much, everyone, and um, we'll look forward to um, having you join us in our support groups every Friday, same time, same phone number. You can um, jump onto a support group, and then in September, join us, and we'll have someone who is a um, home health nutritionist from ThriveRx speaking to us about a topic that's relevant for folks who have maybe some GI dysmotility, so we'll be um, emailing more about that. But thank you so much, and everybody have a great weekend and a great rest of August. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.